Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here, and in today's very special episode of Full Potential Now, I finally get a chance to sit down with the one and only Ted Isidore. That's right, I finally get a chance to pick Ted's brain about what he's learned doing the podcast, how to cope with recovery during the pandemic, how do you know you need help, and much more. Stay tuned, you do not want to miss it. How's it going, Ted? How's it feel to, to have the tables turned? I don't know, man. The tables are turned. I'm squirming in my seat right now. I'm like, <laughs> I usually have the guest sort of have to come up with all the answers. And I just ask these questions and then just like sit back. <laughs> well, not today. Not today. You got me. You caught me. Yeah. Well, we've been we've been talking about doing this podcast for, I mean, honestly, probably close to two years. We've been saying, let's have a podcast where... We turn things around, and, and I ask you some of the questions that have been um, building up in, in, in my head as as I've worked on this podcast the last however many, you know, 30-some episodes or, or whatever we're up to now. Um, so, yeah, I've got a bunch of questions. Let's just, let's just jump into them. How about that? That sounds good, and I like the term, um, the podcast of the podcast. Yeah. This is the <laughs> podcast about the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, before John turns the tables on me, I just want to say John's been a phenomenal editor, and he kind of comes from this place of kind of being outside the professional addiction mental health counselor realm. So he offers this kind of fresh perspective, and so maybe at the end of the of all these questions, I'll turn the tables on him and ask him what he's learned about addiction. Ooh, sounds good. I've I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. All right. So uh, on that on that topic, I want to just ask generally, you know, what um, what what have you learned from from doing the podcast? We we can talk what you've learned from individual guests. We can talk what you've learned um, about the the process of of going through recovery. We can talk about the process of making this podcast. I don't I don't know where. What have you learned, Ted, from from doing this podcast? I think it's a great question. I think when I started. Um, I had these ideas of kind of what it would look like. And I think that it sort of has taken on a life of its own. And uh, each podcast sort of impacts me in different ways, you know, because we interview some people that are in recovery with various addictions. And then we uh, interview healthcare professionals. Had the opportunity to do that, some big wigs out in the field, kind of get their perspective. And ultimately, my idea behind even doing this is to share the wealth of knowledge that oftentimes does not get shared. So for instance, like just the other day, I got a call from a client um, wanting to get in to be seen for an addiction issue. And people are, when they have addiction issues, I mean, you have a lot going on in your life. I mean, it's going to sound weird, but to be a great addict, if I'm going to be addicted to IV heroin, um, that's going to consume a lot of my life. Um, it's going to impact my relationships, probably. It's going to impact my job, kind of my feelings about myself, what I do, maybe even put me in harm's way in some circumstances. So it's this idea that she reaches out, she's having some, you know, she wants to get help, but there's been a lot on her plate. Her plate's overflowing, probably, with issues. And then you have to like contact a counselor. And ask like, hey, I, I saw your name in the, you know, on psychology today or through my insurance company, you know, can you help me out? So 
the idea behind this podcast is to kind of spread the wealth because this person calls me up and she's already made three calls. And then oftentimes people have to make four or five more calls just to get in to be seen. In the meantime, they're struggling with addiction. I mean, it is like if you're in a full-blown addiction, either to heroin, cocaine, alcohol, weed, whatever it is, um, you're struggling with coping with things, let alone having to jump through like 10 hoops just to get in and be seen. So when you actually even look at the research, the highest dropout rate is usually people not even showing up for the first session. They don't even, because a lot of stuff comes up and um, you might get booked out a week, you don't know what to do and you end up relapsing. And then even the next highest rate for dropout is after the first session. You don't connect with your therapist. They ask you the thousand and one questions, um, try to reach a diagnosis, try to kind of get through all the stuff in the first hour and you don't feel connected with them. So you might drop out after that. So the idea really kind of come full circle here with this podcast is let's share a lot of this information so people can use it to benefit themselves and they don't have to make 50 zillion calls to get this information. So originally start out with really trying to inspire people by interviewing people in recovery that have gone through the crap. They've gone through the rock bottoms um, and they've begun to see the light at the end of the tunnel, that there, in, that there can be a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, and you know, I, I think just to, to speak to that, the sharing the knowledge, you know, I know, I know you mentioned uh, turning the tables back on me a little bit later, but, but just to mention it here, I've, I've really learned a lot from just listening to the, the podcast. I've learned a lot about, um, you know, dealing with certain types of stress or, or even just like as somebody who who I wouldn't say necessarily has gone through any of those those uh, rock bottom kind of periods you talk about, you know, I I think there's still a ton that I've been able to learn from what people who are in those situations um, end up going through, and and I think you know while while I've I've certainly had a lot of um, a lot of sympathy for for folks going through that kind of stuff. In, in the past, it really opened my eyes to see just what, you know, when we talk about some of those, um, some of those interviews with, with people who have gone through um, recovery efforts, um, just how, in, how impactful it is on your life and how, um, how pervasive it is, how, how difficult it is to get through, you know, my, my eyes have been kind of open to, to that. And I think there's a lot of value in sharing those experiences um, you know, not, not purely as, uh, not purely as a, as a guide per se, you know, there's certainly a lot of good information that, that, that is out there in, in the podcast that there's a lot of practical things to learn, but just, um, getting a, a window into another experience, um, has, has been very, uh, valuable f- from my perspective, um, listening into these conversations and, and, and being a part of it that way. And that's super cool to hear, John. I mean, because like these people, like oftentimes you like view addiction or like an IV heroin user as so like disconnected from everybody that's not one. Like, oh, that's a junkie. Yeah, I would never do that kind of thing. But yet, as you listen to the stories, I'm in the same place. It touches me personally. I can relate on some levels to some of the emotional conflicts and dilemmas people have that are addicted to this stuff. Um, 
anxiety is anxiety. Depression is depression. Um, people go through ups and downs in their lives. People have, they lack support at times. And even if you're not at, addicted to something, when you lack support, you don't feel that great. You can easily be steered down the wrong path to think in a certain negative kind of way, or maybe even begin to feel like hopeless in the scenarios of your life. So um, that's really cool to hear, John. You know, uh, I, I think building on that question of, of what you've learned from doing the podcast, you know, you've talked a lot about that drop off with the, um, the first, the first visit, the drop off with the second visit, um, so I'm 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 curious how you've seen the uh, the industry you're in in general change in recent years. Um, have you seen any kind of the you know sort of what we're seeing now with with telemedicine increasing due to coronavirus and, and folks being stuck at home? Have you seen that kind of thing happening in the recovery addiction and 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 in in the counseling world in general? Yeah, yeah, I think there's been some changes, especially with the coronavirus, and a lot of play, pretty much everybody's gone over to telemedicine slash telehealth, so um, you can see people over video, you know, it's got some HIPAA requirements definitely behind it, so um, I think there's been a real movement across the field to still be able to help people, but the big thing we've lost in all of that is the power of group therapy and support, so a lot of times addiction programs are really predicated on a lot of group therapy work and people get to connect with other people, kind of go through the journey together. And I think with the drop off of not being able to meet in person, I mean, I think there's maybe some group, you know, like telehealth possibly going on. I've heard some, you know, rumblings of some stuff going on in that realm, but it's really difficult to have like you know, nine different people on like, for instance, a zoom screen and try to do group therapy. I mean, it's not as effective, but it's that being in close proximity to each other, um, being able to see each other's faces, being able to be vulnerable, take risks, pull back, maybe not take as many risks, but learn from other people. You know, the research definitely shows like group therapy and addiction work and also for, for mental health work is definitely you get more bang for your buck. Like we see more improvements, more change happening with clients um, and less relapses when they're actively engaged in the group program. And when I say group program, I'm really talking like in an outpatient basis, you might come to a group once a week, but you're connecting with those people. If you have more issues that you're struggling with, you might be referred to an intensive outpatient group that's typically, you know, three or four times a week for maybe four to six weeks. And that kind of close proximity, being able to have to go someplace, you know, there's drive time, you go there, you go to your two hour group, you come back, that really takes up your evening hours. So if you're struggling with addiction and now you're just seeing your therapist for like an hour over the, over telehealth, still helpful, but I don't think not as impactful in terms of really providing that structure, for instance, in the morning or evening that somebody new in recovery might need. So we always look at when people relapse while they're in treatment. Well, depending on the length and extent of your issues, if, if you don't have that structure, oftentimes it makes you more liable to relapse. And then oftentimes people relapse at home. So this idea of like staying at home all the time, um, you're sort of like locked in your own prison, but it could be your own prison of relapse. 
So the idea of being able to get out of your house, get out of your old using environment, go to some other place that's healthy and structured, that piece is really missing now during the, during the coronavirus. So I think there are probably people being successful in recovery for sure, but I think that's a big piece that I think the treatment community is struggling with right now. Yeah, I guess I never really considered that. Let's say you are you're going to a, a group meeting of some sort and you're going to be there for two hours. You know, you have to you have to commute to that location in most cases. You have to kind of plan your day around it in a way that. Uh, you know, if you're if you're doing everything remotely, I can imagine you're just spending less time focusing on that on that that element of your life, right? You know that that drive to and from wherever you're at or whatever that commute is. You know, you're kind of you're kind of spending that time thinking about what you're what you're doing, where you're going, why you're going there, and that that kind of time is is kind of just taken out of the equation now, isn't it? Yeah, totally, and it, and it's really kind of simple. So it just kind of brings me back to the day. So I worked, um, I managed this adolescent crisis unit in Madison way back in 1996. And so we used to have um, adolescents with significant mental health or addiction addiction issues, and they would be on the unit. And we'd have, you know, a max unit of like eight kids at a time. And it's really kind of where I sort of like learned firsthand real life how like theoretically there's all these theories and treatments and then there's what the clients actually do, which is more real life. And when you get thrown in, you understand all the theories and you get schooled up and all that kind of stuff. But then there's actually a bridge that you have to cross, which is practical application (laughs) when you're dealing with real people. And what we learned with on that unit and this goes back to the kind of changing the environment thing is that we'd have clients that would go into crisis and simply by changing the room they were going in crisis in, like, so for instance, it might be the the general group meeting room, or maybe it was the recreational room or the TV room, whatever it was. But when they were amping up emotionally and, you know, kind of going through their issues and we had to deal with the crisis and de-escalate them, simply by changing the environment would almost shift them at least slightly emotionally and get them thinking a little bit different. And this time, this thing oftentimes gets overlooked. I even think of like parents. I've done this with my own kids and I've noticed it to be effective. So take it off addiction, take it off the coronavirus, take it off teen crisis units and say, hypothetically, quote, you have a normal a normal kid, whatever that could be defined as. But when they get emotionally overloaded, just by shifting them out of like, let's say the living room to their bedroom, to the kitchen, that that actually will help somebody deescalate because you don't have the cues of that in same environment that allows them to escalate and be reinforced. So something maybe chiming into what you're talking about, John, is this idea that If you go out, for instance, to treatment or you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous meeting, and some people newly in recovery go to two or three of those meetings, but just by getting out of your home environment and going someplace else that's more specific and healthy and completely focused on your recovery, probably my guess is if we were to MRI people as they were at home and then MRI'd them before they came into the meeting or the the counseling center, 
that probably we would see shifts in the brain chemistry. We'd probably see shifts in probably certain neurotransmitters in emotional states. Wow. So that's a, that's a, that's like a Ted. That's like my third rant already, John. <laughs> well, you know, I'll just say one thing that I've always liked about working with you, Ted, is you're always the kind of person who you're very you're very research based. Um, you know, when we're when we're posting certain things on the on the the blog, um, you know, I, I know a lot of times we've had cases where you're like, well, let's let's cut that. I don't I don't have the you know, I don't, I don't have the, the, I can't find the paperwork to back it up or whatever. You know, you're always like, can we include more, more research, more, more papers in the actual blog, that kind of stuff. So I, 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 um, I like that we get to, uh, at least from my perspective, kind of dig into, into some of that. And you are, you always want to provide those primary resources, which is always helpful. So I'm interested in, you know, a year or two from now seeing, seeing some of the, the research that I'm sure will come out about how, how things have, uh, have changed or how pe- people dealt with their time here in, in, uh, in social distancing. Yeah, you, even, you know, I was just looking at the other day. I mean, I kind of think of even before I jump into what I was going to say, um, the bottom line is, man, this comes from the heart, John. I've been in the business 20-some years, and I think oftentimes it is so freaking hard just to get in the treatment goes back to the story where you're struggling with addiction or mental health issues and you have to jump through so many hoops just to get into the room with somebody that can help and and it's like it's a tragedy it's a tragedy for people it's a tragedy in the field and it's like how do we get people in quickly because we know when somebody's thinking about recovery that window closes up that can close up pretty quick and you can get back into your using cycle. So then when that window opens up, you know, my hopes for the field is that we can develop programs that get people in almost the same day, if not the next day to get working on bettering themselves. So that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a tragedy in the field. And then when I think of like this coronavirus thing, um, I was like, this was probably maybe about four weeks ago. I was like, because everybody's like, well, we, there's so much uncertainty. What exactly is going to happen with this? Are people going to like completely emotionally bust, break down? We hear see huge instances of depression, anxiety. Are people with addiction just going to go off the rails? I mean, very compelling, real questions, no doubt. And so I started digging into the research, and actually, what I found found stumbled into was social isolation, the first things that pop up are the, guess what population? The elderly. Mm. And so we actually have a shitload of information on the elderly being socially isolated and what happens to them when they get socially isolated. When they don't see people the way they used to see people, they sit home 24-7. What happens to them? Well, guess what we see? Um, they feel disconnected. There's, there are higher instances of anxiety, depression. Um, people who are still struggling with addiction at older ages, they'll resort back to, to using, falling back into relapse cycles because of the scenario. And of course, what's the remedy that they generally find in terms of elderly people reporting increased feelings of well-being? 
social contact. You know, uh, just to share a, a, an anecdotal story from myself. So um, a number of years ago, I worked a job where I was just working way too many hours. It was kind of a startup area, and I, I, I was just really overworked and wasn't taking care of myself. And I ended up dealing with a lot of anxiety and stress. And, you know, eventually I, I got out of that job because I could see it wasn't a, a healthy place for me. And the thing that really helped me the most, no kidding, was I, I, I decided I'm going to go down to my local game store and I'm going to play Magic the Gathering, play some cards with random people. I don't know. I'm going to do it twice a week. And I forced myself to do that. And that was, you know, anecdotally, again, um, that was just for me the the single most helpful thing, just getting out there and and hanging out with people. But you know, I, we can't we can't really do that right now. You know, I, somebody can't go down to the to their local game star and and just sling some cardboard with with random strangers to get that interaction in. So I'm curious from your perspective, um, what is what are some things that people who are struggling right now you know, whether they're struggling with um, a pre-existing addiction or maybe they're facing some some new feelings now that they're, um, you know, isolated from their friends. What are some practical things folks can do to uh, stay mentally healthy and, and uh, stay connected right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I want to jump into that one, but I, the thing I want to say about your story, about taking care of yourself, going to a different environment, for two days a week and connecting with other people. Um, even though we would say, how does that even relate to somebody with addiction? It completely relates to not only that, to probably all of us, but with addiction, it's getting into a different environment around people where you share a common interest or a common focus or a common goal, right? Um, so it doesn't surprise me that that actually would be super effective for you. But the thing that really intrigues me about your story, John, is your ability to push yourself to get there twice a week. So my curious question is always, what did you do? Because there's probably a week when you didn't do it. What did you do? What kind of resource did you access within yourself to get you there that first week twice? You know, that's so hard because I've, um, I, I don't really know what it is. I think that I've just kind of made a decision that, uh, at, at, at certain points you have to, you have to make a decision, right? So, so the, the thing that I think back to is in college, I did some study on Kierkegaard and I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kierkegaard and his philosophy, but one of the one of the main lessons I took away from from that class and something that stuck in my head, this was on one of the first days we talked about a story Kierkegaard tells about a ship uh, flowing flowing with the water, right? And the ship is is headed straight for a rock. And you can choose to go left or you can choose to go right. If you don't do anything, a choice is made for you. and and what happens? The rock crashes into the or the ship crashes into the rock. And that's the kind of thing that, that I realized, like, you know, if you think back to any, any moment you're, you're bored, right? If you just think about the fact that, okay, I know I've been bored in the past and, and as you know, sooner rather than later, um, I'm not going to be bored anymore. 
So just kind of deal with it, sit through that boredom. You're not going to be bored anymore. I, I take the same approach with with a lot of the things that um, that have been a, a challenge for me. So so when I got out of that job um, in the first ten months working in my new job, I lost a hundred pounds, and that was the same sort of like you know I just had to make a decision that you know I, I can think about all the things that are so difficult about this, about losing this weight, about you know just the struggles that are that are that I'm going to go through, but you know sooner sooner rather than later, you know, or or next thing I know, I'm just going to open my eyes and and the weight will have, have been lost. You know, I could, you could take it down to every, every little element. If you want, you can go down to the smallest element. Okay. I know that if I'm following the guidance I've, I've gotten from my doctor, I can lose, uh, you know, about two pounds a week. And that seems like, Oh, that's nothing. I want to lose a hundred pounds. But you know, a year ago from today feels like just yesterday. Right. So um, how cool would it be to, to, to have lost that weight and, and to, f- to feel that feeling of, oh yeah, it feels like just yesterday I was trying to, to do that. So, so for me, it's just been at some point, I just kind of, with anything in my life, I get to a point where it's like, okay, enough is enough. I'm making a choice. I'm going to, I'm going to do something about it right now. I'm going to take action. And, um, you know, I don't always have that, that willpower that, that I, I wish I could keep up a hundred percent of the time, 24 seven. But, um, you know, I, it's, it's really just about making that decision and having that willpower and, and understanding that I am in control of my life. Um, that was a big thing. Like I, I remember when I was in, I remember when I was, when I was first getting into college, um, and I started making music, um, you know, shameless plug. I put some of my music in this in this episode, uh, which or is in, awesome. in, you know in, in every in every episode of the show. Thank you. Um, but for me, you know, there was just a moment where I realized like nobody ever told me I could make songs, so I didn't think of it as a possibility. And that was that was kind of the light switch. Uh, in the light switch that that flipped at that point was, oh, if somebody else can do it, I can do it. And that's that's how I try to po- approach all of this stuff. You know, I see. Um, you know, I think this is one of the things that has been most encouraging about listening to to the podcast. It's like if I can hear about all these people who have who have gotten through X, Y, or Z. You know, if they can get through that, I can get through whatever I'm struggling with right now. So that's that's the approach I try to take. And how you actually tap into that, I don't know. You know, I think I think having self control and tapping into your own willpower is something that obviously I think everybody struggles with. A lot of people have have a lot of problems that, that are solved by a little bit more self-control and realizing you have control over your, over your, your, your body and your, your actions. But, but the simple, uh, exercise I did at one point, this, this is all the way back in college was, you know, I, I saw that, you know, people never stick to resolutions every year. And I just decided I want to be somebody who sets resolutions and sticks to them. So I set a resolution where I was just going to count the number of high fives I got in a year. It wasn't about getting getting as many as I could or anything. I was just going to count it and just stick to a thing and do a thing. And um, and I did it. And now, you know, pretty much 100% of the time, if I decide to set a resolution, I'm going to stick with it. So that's a, that's a long rambling answer. Uh, I, I think it all boils down to just willpower and realizing that you do have control. Really, that's that that's the biggest thing for me. John, man, you just gave, you just answered the question for me. I mean, there's so, so much of what you said that is so relevant, even if we, if we decide to apply it to people 
um, with addiction. I mean, people just in general is this idea that in just working with a lot of people who struggle with anxiety and depression, bipolar disorder, whatever it is. Um, and obviously there's neurochemistry involved in all those disorders, but ultimately you'll have thought processes about wanting to change. Like my life, I don't like the way my life is right now or some aspect of my life. And we can sit in our rooms and I've done it guilty as charged, no doubt, and just mull it over, mull it over and mull it over and mull it over and, and put us, put ourselves into spin outs. I call them. And we just have panic attacks. We get overwhelmed, all that kind of good stuff. But all we're doing is just thinking about it. We're wanting, we have this idea in our heart of wanting a better life in some way, shape, or form. But what we're doing is we're staying put. We have the initial idea, but we're staying stuck in the ideas. And what you just named, just I thought so eloquently and beautifully, is that it first starts um, with those ideas, but then ultimately you have to make a decision and then take action action. So some people actually mull the ideas over, they stay stuck in the mulling. Some people mull the ideas over, they reach the decision state, I got to do something about it. But they don't get to that action stage, which is, you don't know what the fuck's going to happen. You have no idea. But what you're going to do is you're going to put your best foot forward. And the shit could go off the rails, no doubt. But you're going to, you're going to take some action, you're going to put your best foot forward, courageously, and begin to try something different in your life that just might produce a different kind of outcome for you. So, you know, they always say the, what is the definition of insanity? It's an AA thing. It's, you know, been around for centuries, it seems like, but the definition of insanity is continuing to do the same exact thing over and over again and expecting different results. You got to take, you got to do something different. Mm -hmm. So, the amazing thing is to come up with the ideas that, hey, I want something better. The willpower is there. Then you 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 figured out, hey, you were influenced by somebody back in college. You said, man, I got to make a decision. And then I got to take some action. And then the other thing that I think you did so beautifully, I mean, this is like this is like a mini story into success, which the last piece of it is you decided, all right, I want to lose 100 pounds. But if I just say I lost one pound this week. And now I got to do it all over again and I'm only at 99. Well, after a while, you just want to give up. You're like, it's not happening quick enough. But what you did, at least what I heard you in your words, is that if you just, all you have to do is do it for today. You don't have to worry about the future. You don't have to look back at the past, really. It's all about today. And if your goal today is I got to do this one different thing and, and, and the only thing you have to do is you don't have to think about doing it for 100 straight days. You just think about doing it for today, get that done, wake up the next day and then just do it for that day. And eventually we begin to accumulate days put together and then that leads to the big time results. But of course, everybody at day one looks at the person at day 100 and they say, I want what they have. But yep. then 10 days into it, they're like, this is way too effing hard. Forget it. I can't get there. I'm quitting. Um, and that's why I think like refocusing on just for today. And like we all are going to have slips. It happens. It happens in addiction. It happens with just about everything in life. We have some steps. We take some steps back. But I, I, I love this. 
I think it was Jim Rohn. He's this like self-development guru guy. I'm like a self-development junkie. I'll, I'll admit it. <laughs> you look at my library. I have like 300 self-development books. And my wife, Jill, looks at me and she's like, Ted, you got to get rid of those books. <laughs> you got to get rid of at least half of them. There's like stacks. And so I start going through them and I'm like, I can't get rid of that one. I can't get rid of that one. Um, but he, but he, he, he had this like really interesting idea that he said in terms of maintaining progress or wanting something new is that even if we fall off the wagon, so to speak, we wake up the next day, we have the opportunity to start anew again. There's not, nothing stopping us from saying, all right, I took a step back. I took five steps back the last five days, but today's a new day. I could actually start clean again. And so sometimes thinking that way, I know that helps me when I get in the ruts and fall off the wagon in, in a variety of ways, just with my fitness, health, whatever it is, mm -hmm. that, hey, you can, you woke up today, today's a new day. You can actually start over. Yeah. Can I share just a, uh, a couple other little tips here now that we're now that we're apparently in john's john's uh, soapbox corner uh yeah. <laughs> you know the, the the other thing that is that has helped me a lot uh there, there's two things that helped have helped me a lot both in my personal and and professional careers um as an as an adult uh the first was was being okay with not being right um that helped me just immensely in my professional career. I had a moment where I was working with somebody and they were saying, you know, oh no, no, this, this, this problem I'm running into, it's because of X, Y, or Z. And I was like, I don't, I really don't, I don't, I don't think it's that. Let's go take a look. And they were saying, oh, you want to bet? You want to bet? And I realized, no, I don't, because I don't, I don't care if I'm right. I care that we get the right information and, and move forward with, with that. So that was the first the first big thing for me is just being okay with being wrong because it is not a, it is, it, it shows character that you're able to learn from new information. And I think that goes with everything in life. The other big thing for me was, um, anytime we're looking at these big decisions, like, okay, do I want to start tracking my food? For example, when I was losing weight, do I want to go through the effort of doing that all day, every day? Um, or any of these other big, big things. Like, do I want to go into, um, talk to somebody to get help, for example, uh, literally writing down what, what's the worst that can happen and writing out on paper, what is the worst, what are the worst possible outcomes from making this decision? And a lot of times you'll realize that that worst possible outcome is, is really just not, not that bad. You know, it's like, do I want to reach out and, and get help? Okay, well, why why wouldn't I want to do that? Okay, maybe I'm embarrassed or I don't think it'll work. You write out the what's the worst that can happen. Okay, this doesn't work out for me and I go back to where I am today. Okay, so why not try? You know, that, that kind of thing. Literally writing down what's the worst that can happen and writing it all out and just getting it out of your system, not just in your head spinning around where it can kind of echo around and and make itself work worse. Um and, and, you know, just, just kind of moving on that way. It's, it's, it's sort of the, I, I think, I think some of these thoughts can kind of spin around in your, in your head, particularly if you, if you think certain ways, 
Um, like if you experience anxiety, like I sometimes do, you know, you get these thoughts that just kind of spin around in your head and they amplify themselves. So getting them down on paper and, and letting yourself acknowledge you have those thoughts and move on. Um, that's been another, another thing that's been hugely helpful for me. So, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully that works for, for some of you out there. Dude, you are so spot on with that. And you're not even talking about recovery, but you actually are. Because when we first started talking, we talked about the power of group therapy. And I think like that actually is some of the power of group therapy is that we can be spinning out in our own thoughts and to expect people when they're spinning out to get themselves out. It's almost can sometimes be impossible. You need like an outside entity, a person, groups of people to say, wait a second, did you think about this? Because it gets you get your top stop spinning. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like when people go into it, like even addiction treatment, they have their own, you know, conceived thoughts about where they're at and how they're doing and what they think about themselves. And so that's the power of when you're in a group format, like when you think of AA or NA smart recovery treatment in intensive outpatient residential treatment, you're getting exposure to help you not stay spun out and give you different ideas some ideas you might take, some ideas you might not, but you're now again open to maybe trying some different things. Yeah. So I, I guess um, just to, to loop back around to the question that sort of started this this conversation, any other um, tips or tricks or, or recommendations from your perspective for folks who are dealing with um, addiction right now, ways that they can that they can get through? this, uh, lockdown period? Yeah. Um, well, I think for sure getting routine in your life is so important in having a schedule. I mean, it sounds like so basic. A lot of people say like, well, Ted, man, I could have told you that you got all of that. You got that alphabet soup after your name, man, I could have came up with that one, but seriously routine and structure and having a regular sleep, go to bedtime and wake up time. Um, awesome. It, like an awesome, awesome tool to keep things on track. I think getting some sort of exercise, you have to alter your physiological state. And we know there's so many benefits to exercise, even if it's walking. I'm not talking about you have to be a triathlete or anything like that. Get out and get some exercise because we know that produces endorphins, you know, feelings of good, you know, you have feelings of well-being, um, I think you have to laugh a lot. You have to try to stay connected every day with somebody that you feel supports you. So a lot of people just say, just stay connected. Well, if you stay connected to a bunch of people who are dysfunctional as hell, that's probably not going to help you out very much. If anything, it's going to reinforce you going down into the big hole. So, I mean, obviously we have different levels and different you know types of friends, but making sure you're getting support from people that are positive in nature and understand your dilemma and offer you a, a decent level of healthiness in terms of the discussion and support. And I think when you feel down, um, I think reaching out and having some special support people in your life that might check in on you if they don't hear from you, I'm not talking about, you know, inevitably suicide. I mean, obviously that, that would be the case, but I think just in general, you know, making sure you set up time that you're going to be checking in and have regular contact, even if it's over the internet with people is so, so important. 
Um, in terms of relapsing, I think there's a lot of um, online AA and NA meetings and smart recovery things on, online might be on online as well. So I think staying involved in recovery circles is super good. If you're an AA or NA person, having a sponsor can be super good too. Because if when we think about people relapsing, everybody always thinks like, oh yeah, I woke up and then I relapsed. And in my track, my clinical track through, you know, working with thousands of people who have addiction issues, relapse does not happen typically instantaneously. It's set up over a period of days, if not weeks. Meaning your thoughts, you might be in recovery now, but your thoughts about using will begin to shift. And inevitably, if you're going to relapse, I mean, it's going to, once again, John, you're going to be like, Ted, I could have said that. If you're going to relapse, you're going to have relapse thoughts. <laughs> People are like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you, you're actually beginning to shift your thinking and you might begin to reminisce more about the old times, the good feelings you had, the old friends, and then you'll begin making decisions that lead you maybe back down that path that then make it okay to relapse. So if you're in recovery, you have to make a compelling case to relapse. And the only way you make the compelling case is you have to begin to shift your thinking to make it a compelling case. And you have plenty of old thoughts, old cues, old cravings that will set off that old way of thinking. But the old way of thinking doesn't typically come in like instantaneous. It doesn't happen. You have to be vigilant if your thinking is shifting. And then if you have a support person who knows you fairly well and knows you in recovery and how you talk and think, that person will be the best person to probably identify your early signs on relapse. And then you can intervene at that point. It's a lot easier to intervene than say, you're in your house, you already bought the bottle of booze, or you only got the heroin or you're ready to shoot it. Then you're like, well, um, I think I should not do this. I actually think at that point, you're almost past the point of no return. It is so difficult to shift and reach out at the point. I mean, obviously, I would encourage you to, but your neurochemicals, your dopamine levels, it's all tipped off at that point. So early intervention, early identification of those thoughts shifting, feelings thinking, super crucial. And I would say that's probably would qualify as my third rant. <laughs> well, I'll add just one more general mental health uh, wellness tip that I've learned um, yeah. over this time time in isolation, and that is, um, you know, be vigilant and and diligent about the kinds of information you're letting into your system. So, you know, we talked a lot about how we have these thoughts that can kind of build up and swirl swirl around in in your head. I think it can be easy with all this extra time for certain types of people to spend that time on social media, for example, on Facebook, on Twitter, on, on whatever plat, uh, platform you want. And it's important to know that these platforms are built in such a way that they want you to, to stick around as long as possible, spend as much time as possible on these platforms so you see as many ads as possible, which is how they make their money off of you is selling your data and and selling your your uh, your eyeballs in the form of, of these ads. 
So knowing that, um, if you are engaging in certain types of content, um, for example, let's say every time a post about the coronavirus comes up, you take a look at it, um, or even you know certain types of posts really scare you or or give you anxiety. You know, you may take a look at that and. Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, they're going to show you more of that exact kind of content because you've demonstrated, I want to, you know, this is, this is the kind of content that, that, that gets me engaged, which equals longer uh, time on that platform. Same goes for, for YouTube. You know, you watch a couple YouTube conspiracy videos and you're going to see conspiracy video after conspiracy video. And there's so much content out there that they can show you this kind of stuff all day long. And even if you're not spending, um, you know, all, all that much time looking at specific types of content, um, you know, like maybe you're not watching a ton of videos, but maybe you're just idly scrolling through Facebook a lot. Well, if you pause and, and look at all of these posts about this, this or that problem, um, it's still going to show you more of that stuff. Eventually on Facebook, you'll see all of the posts from that day, and it's going to start showing you posts from earlier in the week. And sometimes you see the same story a hundred times as you're scrolling by. And I think it slowly makes your brain feel like this is a hundred times bigger than it really is. It, it makes all these things blow up because these things that, that are causing your anxiety or causing fear, causing, um, you know, unease about the future, which is reasonable right now with everything going on, those get amplified because you see them over and over and over again. Sometimes the same exact post from, from, or the same exact little piece of information from a ton of different news sources, for example. And it just reinforces all of that. Oh yeah, I should be worried about this more than I am because I'm seeing this a thousand times. And in reality, it's sometimes just the mechanisms behind how the internet works, how it, how it works to serve up ads. And it's not even necessarily malicious. You know, these, these platform holders, they want you to stay on the platform as long as possible, so they've developed AI um, algorithms that that work to do that. So, um, so for me, what's what's helped a lot is just saying, okay, there's there's certain days I'm just not going to go look at those platforms. You know, a Saturday morning, I'm going to give myself Saturday to not look at that stuff. Um, or if I am going to scroll through, I'm going to look at that stuff maybe one time a day at a set time of day to kind of limit the amount of time that I'm spending on that that thing that causes me stress. Um, and that kind of, that kind of control, um, has helped a lot during, um, during the lockdown. So that's, that's just another, another little, uh, another little tip for me. I know, I know not necessarily specifically about the, about addiction, but I'm sure, you know, if you have issues with, with substance abuse, I can imagine these kind of situations don't make it any easier. Oh, you're so spot on, man. The whole, like limiting the amount of exposure you have to this potentially high anxiety raising information. I mean, obviously you want to know what's going on, but not at the cost of your own well-being. And so I love that those ideas. And I've, I've, I've done that myself. Like I started watching the news when this COVID thing first started, I'd watch CNN or some news show for like an hour or two hours. And they just repeat what they just said. And I found myself actually getting more and more anxious and so now here we are on like week eight. Um, I just basically get the updates at the end of the night, like for 20 minutes, you can pretty much get the updates of where we're standing and then find that my anxiety is much less. And I guess the other point I, I want to say with what you said, because I think it's so valuable when we dive deep into anxiety 
is if we watch these same things over and over again and our anxiety level goes up, I really translate that on a physiological level. So we have our sympathetic nervous system and our uh, parasympathetic nervous system. Our sympathetic nervous system is responsible for our fight or flight response. So we get hyped up and energized and, and ready to take action because it's, it's a survival mechanism. So it's built into the body. Um, and then we have our parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for our relaxation response. And our parasympathetic service, nervous system is operating when we're sleeping. So when we really actually think about why people get more and more anxious, it's actually neurochem. A lot of it's neurochemical in nature. If I watch more of these posts and my anxiety, anxiety level goes up, my sympathetic nervous system is stacking on itself. And then people will report they might even develop in, it might even develop into a panic attack. The sudden wave of anxiety, your heart will raise, you'll get sweaty, you'll feel like you're dying, you can't breathe, you might even feel like you're having a heart attack. Um, but that's like the sympathetic nervous system stacking on itself. So to bring that down, the answer is to access the parasympathetic nervous system. So people will say, well, Ted, how do I do that? Well, when you get into mindfulness and some of the podcasts we've done around that, you're talking about deep breathing. And... Um, mindfulness and how do we access, how do we change our breath pattern just to settle down? And what we know to be true in the lab is that we can change our breath pattern. And by changing our breath pattern, we change that physiological system. So our sympathetic nervous system might be up to a 10. We do some deep breathing where I can see immediate results, but it'll drop down to a nine, eventually to an eight, to a seven. We keep working at it. And the more we practice this kind of stuff, um, the better we get at it and the better our body remembers it. But it's really tough. I mean, if you're in the midst of a panic attack, I mean, a lot of people say like, oh, yeah, do deep breaths. Well, it doesn't really work, Ted. Um, sometimes you might need a support person just to kind of guide you through it, a tape you can throw on, something you can listen to on your headset. But you got to begin bringing that sympathetic nervous system response down. And by not exposing yourself to constant ads, you probably allow – your parasympathetic nervous system and just being neutral to exist more during the day than being on that heightened response. That's rant four, man. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the point of, of this episode. So I have a couple more questions for you and I, I think that'll be, that'll be good for, for this, uh, this episode. I think we, we ought to do another one of these, um, yeah. maybe, maybe a, a handful of months down the road, but I've got a couple more questions here. So that, that I want to make sure I touched on, you know, I kind of pinged some of my, my friends and, and colleagues and, and said, you know, Hey, I'm going to be interviewing, uh, Ted here. Any, any kinds of questions you'd want to ask, uh, somebody in this profession. And, uh, one of the more general ones, and we've kind of touched on this as a, as a, an, an idea for an episode in the past, but I, I'd like to hear from, from your perspective, you know, how do I know if I have a problem and, and maybe even more importantly, do I need to be quote unquote addicted to have a problem and, and seek help? Ah, the million dollar question, Johnny drops the bomb right at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that. Cause this is like such a, su such a common question. And I, I still think we do enough education around it. So we have this thing called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Health and Substance Use Disorders, DSM-5 it's called. It's the current version. So it's not 
magic how a counselor figures out if somebody's addicted or not. There's just a set amount of assessment questions we go through. Um, not to say that this is conclusively diagnostic at this point, but when you look up substance use disorders, there's 11 criteria. And so if you have two or three of those criteria, it could indicate that you have a mild substance use disorder. If you have four or five, it would indicate you have a moderate substance use disorder and above five is um, six or more, you know, six to 11 is considered a severe or substance use disorder. So there's certain criteria we've discovered that are relevant to addiction where we see commonalities that if you start exhibiting more of these symptoms, it'll be more indicative that you're having a problem. Now, the thing I want to preface is we, you know, we always like to conceptualize people in these 11 criteria, but there are people that probably hang out on the fringes of not even getting sort of on the criteria board, but it might begin to develop into a problem. And when you think of things developing into a substance use problem, they don't happen overnight. You know, we know we have a genetic predisposition, 50%, roughly. I mean, the research varies 40 to 60%. We've traced it genetically that if your mom or dad or blood relatives have, a, have had a legitimate alcohol or drug use disorder, that that roughly, if you, if you kind of rough it out, comes out to your 50-50 shot coming out of the womb day one. So, for instance, my dad was an alcoholic. I have a twin brother, Tony, where basically we came out of the womb. We roughly have had a 50-50 shot that, that we'll develop an alcohol or drug addiction by the time we die. Fortunately for me, I've been lucky, but when I look back at my youth, I probably engaged in probably substance abuse on some level, um, for sure. It just didn't develop into a full addiction. So when we look at really the 11 criteria, um, I'm just going to kind of go through them just uh, real quick. And once again, these aren't conclusive. So a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll go through these criteria with my UW-Whitewater class. And the kids are like, oh, my God, I think I'm an alcoholic, Ted. I'm like, just relax. I mean, these are just general guideposts. You obviously have to be assessed by a professional and go through all the assessment questions, that sort of thing. Um, but generally speaking, when people use, drive around or engage in hazardous behavior, so like we mostly think of people driving intoxicated repeatedly or driving under the influence of you know, opioids, heroin, cocaine, marijuana, sedatives, if they're addicted to sedatives could be indicative of that criteria. Um, the substance use begins to cause you relationship problems and conflicts with others. It begins to impact, this is the third one, it, it begins to impact your responsibilities at work, school, or home. Um, a fourth factor is if you get withdrawal from that substance. So alcohol, you might get the sweats or shakes. I mean, more severe cases are called delirium tremens. They can be lethal. You can have alcohol-related seizures. Um, marijuana, you're not going to get much uh, withdrawal symptoms from. You might be irritable. Um, you might, you know, some people complain of headaches. Pretty minimal stuff. Cocaine withdrawal or, you know, a stimulant withdrawal, you're going to crash hard the next day. You're going to sleep a lot. You might feel depressed. You're going to eat more. Um, when we get into opioid withdrawal, we get into flu-like symptoms. 
And anybody who's been dope sick knows they've been dope sick and you never want to be dope sick again. Um, being Having opioid heroin withdrawal is probably not going to kill you. I've never had an episode of it. It, it feels like it will. Um, but the big two that will kill you are alcohol and sedative or benzodiazepine withdrawal. Those are dangerous. So you always want to be assessed by a professional. So if you get withdrawal symptoms, that's maybe the fourth criteria. The fifth criteria is if you develop tolerance over time. Meaning, for instance, when Ted first drank when he was 15 years old, he had one beer and he got his first alcohol buzz on. Now, when I still drink, I'm 52, I probably have one, everybody considers me a lightweight, I still get that same buzz. People that develop increased tolerance after a few years from their first time they drank, so if you would average it out maybe over a decade after they first drank, maybe they might drink when they're 17, 18, or get high the first time when they're 17 or 18. Um, when that amount doubles, triples, or quadruples, that means you have increased tolerance. So to be more to the point on this, detail-wise, we would say that Ted had one beer, and he would get his first buzz when he was 15. He's now 20 years old. He's in college. Now he needs three to kind of get that same buzz on. That would mean my tolerance has increased by three times, so I would probably fit that criteria. Or... I maybe smoked a half a joint or half a bowl when I first started smoking weed. Now it usually takes me a full bowl to get that same first buzz, um, weed buzz. Then that would be considered increased tolerance. And a side note to increased tolerance is I call it the kiss of death. It's my own framing for it. Kind of gets my college students' attention. But ultimately, you're, it, it's the law of blood alcohol concentration levels with specifically to alcohol I'm mainly talking about. Meaning if I get increased tolerance to alcohol, my BAC level, blood alcohol concentration level, is naturally going to go up over time, even though I'm feeling generally the same. So let's say, for instance, two beers gets my BAC to 0.04 if I drink that in two hours. If I have increased tolerance... And now I have to drink four to get that same effect. So I'm still feeling like I'm at a 0.04 level, but now I'm actually at a 0.08 level. Um, that's what really gets people into trouble. So increased tolerance will oftentimes over a person's history cause them to drink more and more over time. And once again, their BAC levels begin to be jacked up. And then if you start getting blood alcohol concentration levels above 0.20, we know by the research, you increase your risk for an alcohol-related blackout. So blackout's different than passing out. Passing's out. Passing out means you drink so much you fall asleep. Blacking out means you're up moving around and you don't remember parts, if not the whole evening, and you have to ask people what you were doing. So that's criteria four. Criteria five, or that's criteria five. Criteria six would be you begin to use more and more over time you know, more amount, more frequency. Um, and then the next criteria would be you probably have repeated attempts to control your use or quit, which is kind of the first deal everybody really makes with themselves. They recognize maybe they have an incident, an embarrassing incident, and they don't want to have that happen again. So they try to cut down or quit for periods of time. That criteria says you try to, you attempt to do that, but more times than not, you fail. So, as I'm saying these criteria, we generally get the, the picture here 
of, and that's where they, we kind of sort of get this disease concept, that it begins to take over more and more aspects of your life. Um, criteria eight would, would be you start spending more and more of your time doing it. So sometimes people might define that as 10 or more hours per week, trying to get the substance and using the substance and recovering from the substance. But once again, we're looking at people generally you'll maybe start using once a week, you'll get to twice a week, then you'll start getting to three, four, and five times a week. So that means it's beginning to take over your life. Um, people will naturally give up the things they used to do in honor of pursuing the substance. Um, criteria, and that would be criteria 10, which is we kind of give up our recreational activities, the things we did when we were sober or not using, and we trade those in to do substance use activities. And it kind of goes back to my whole phrase. People are going to be like, what do you mean by this, Ted? But I say like, likes, like. Say it again. Like, likes, like. Meaning, if I'm a triathlete and I'm into fitness, most likely I'll probably eventually hang out with a bunch of people who are probably the same way. They, they do triathlons. They're into fitness. If I'm an alcoholic that drinks and I drink every day, I'm not going to be hanging out with a bunch of people that don't drink and are athletic or triathletes. What I'm going to do is I'm going to gravitate towards other people that enjoy drinking as much as me. So predominantly, especially if somebody's, for instance, engaged in they have an alcohol use disorder severe because they have more than five of these criteria. Their slew of friends oftentimes will just be drinkers. And it makes sense because like, likes, like. Like I'm going to be able to hang out and drink with all my bar friends than I would hanging out with all of these athletic friends. Um, and then the final criteria is, um, or actually there's two more, criteria 10 is, you might get physical or psychological problems related to use, meaning you could endure liver damage, lung cancer, physical health problems, or anxiety or depression issues, mental health issues. You know that that substance generally takes away those symptoms, your anxiety or depression symptoms, but in the long run, they probably make them worse. So just real quickly for the sake of time, probably if somebody comes in with a cocaine addiction and I saw them, I'll probably predict they'll probably score fairly high in the, de the back depression inventory because it runs hand in hand with stimulant use. Somebody goes comes in for marijuana use disorder, probably the majority of what I see is they might have a co-occurring anxiety disorder and the marijuana helps them get rid of the anxiety but makes it worse in the end. Um, and then the final one is if you get substance cravings, meaning you stop for a while, but then you get these cravings to use, and ultimately you might act on them. And that pretty much sums up the 11 criteria. Once again, you have to get a, a, an assessment by a professional, but that might lead you down the path of kind of figuring this out, which ultimately is my main point here. It's not to pathologize people. This is to give you good information that, in my experience, Somebody just doesn't, for instance, snap of the fingers, right? They have all 11 criteria in three, three days. It doesn't happen. If you're going to have the disease of addiction, it will develop over time, and you'll probably eventually start out with one of these criteria, 
and you'll just accumulate more and more as time goes on. And ultimately, when you look at these 11 criteria, it's basically a disease that gets out of control and it progresses over time. So I so think that, um, th there's a lot of a, a lot of good info there, but I think for the for the kind of folks that are maybe in, in between, you know, they're they're maybe not like they're they're realizing that they're they may they may have a problem, but they're not to that step where they've got you know seven eight of those eleven criteria. Am am I hearing correctly that really the one of the bigger things to think about is is this impacting my life or or more specifically how is this impacting my life right oh i do johnny i love you man <laughs> if you just bring it back to real life that was clinically technical so you'd say like if you have two or three of those that's mild so that's how it would start but i like what you just said is yeah if substances are screwing up your relationships causing you a lot of problems or beginning to cause you problems in your life and it causes you to do things you don't really like you know, in terms of what you've done, um, it's good to take a closer look at that in your relationship with that substance. Cool. Well, I think those are all the big questions I wanted to ask you, Ted. So thanks for uh, thanks for 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 taking the time to answer them. You rocked, Johnny. You rocked it, my brother. Thanks, Ted. All right. Well, take care. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here again. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Ted, for giving me the opportunity to pick your brain, ask all these questions, and be a part of the podcast these last few years. Um, I really have learned a ton, and it's been a lot of fun, so thank you. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. Now stay tuned for a special preview of an upcoming three-part Full Potential Now series. Thanks for listening. I like to know about where people come from, you know, about how they grew up, because it, even just a little bit of a backstory so that we can get an idea to paint a picture of who this person is. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I'm Dalton, and uh, I live here in Los Feliz. And I am 46 years old. I um, got sober at 20, 21. So I have 25 years of sobriety. In my younger years, I grew up outside of Houston. And I actually, like, I was actually able to drink since I was a young kid um, in, in my parents' household. I'm from a good-looking, athletic family. And I'm the youngest of five kids, and I came out of the shoot uh, a theater person. So I am a person who really genuinely felt like I never quite fit in. I didn't know where I, um, where my people were. I felt sort of like an alien, you know, dropped into this family of beautiful people. And I just, I just, um, but that's not why I, I drank and did drugs. Um, um, I grew up in a place called Pacoima which is in deep, deep, deep in the San Fernando Valley. And um, it's a bad neighborhood. I grew up, you know, surrounded. I had three older brothers and they were all in gangs. And my parents were, um, 
divorced by the time I was three, so there was no parental supervision. 